Critical race theory is at the heart of some of today's most fiery culture wars. But does it deserve the heat? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. We were joined by Joshua Seeley Harrington to talk about critical race theory. Josh is an assistant professor at Toronto Metropolitan University's Lincoln Alexander School of Law. He is also counsel at Power Law. Josh is incredibly insightful, but he's also one of the sunniest and most generous people I've ever met. So we are so appreciative that he could talk to us about this complicated topic. I think I understand critical race theory a lot better after our discussion. If you enjoyed this conversation, please show your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. All right, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh. Uh, just to get started, I think a lot of people have heard about critical race theory, but don't really know what it is. So what is it? The issue actually isn't just people not knowing what critical race theory is. It's also the fact that there's an active, well-funded right-wing misinformation campaign around critical race theory, such that when people want to hear about what it is, uh, some of the sources that they'll find online are not just uh, kind of subtly inaccurate, but are, are deliberately misrepresentative. There's a couple different ways to come at defining critical race theory. It originates as a body of scholarship and scholars in the United States analyzing the relationship between law and racism. In that sense, it can be seen as kind of a graduate body of legal scholarship examining uh, how law has been used to either institutionalize white supremacy or in a happier light to challenge white supremacy or an entrenched racial hierarchy. Uh, so that's one way you can define it, kind of where it originates. Uh, but the phrase critical race theory has traveled a fair amount, not quite to kind of kindergarten classrooms as some of the right-wing uh, propaganda misrepresents. Uh, but if you Google or kind of look up research in a variety of different disciplines, critical race theory is now a phrase that you can find in uh, you know, sociology, education, anthropology, philosophy. Uh, and in that sense, I, you know, I'm not a scholar of those areas specifically, but in a loose sense, these are just areas which have also come to realize that attention to race matters or can be significant in a variety of disciplines. And so they too uh, will sometimes associate themselves with critical race theory. But that's that that I'd say is kind of where it has uh, extrapolated to its origins is definitely uh, in the legal academy. Wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the origins of critical race theory. Sort of where did it emerge from? What are some of the maybe events and ideas and people who are most um, associated with building the movement? Yeah. So um, I mean, the most famous text. Uh, on uh, critical race theory and its origins was uh, critical race theory, the key writings that formed the movement that was edited by Kimberly Crenshaw and, uh, uh, and several other critical race theory scholars. And in that text and in other articles that you can read, critical race theory emerges in the American Legal Academy with, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it emerges, but I'd say the tidiest description is scholars of color who identified the persistence of racial inequality despite the passage of civil rights legislation. So the main idea that they were arguing was that despite certain forms of legal protection that were meant to you know, guarantee or promote racial equality, 
racial inequality was persisting in the United States. And so they were interested in figuring out why that was happening, uh, how to respond to it. And they were critical of a kind of branch, a branch of liberal legal theory that uh, was very confident in kind of colorblind legal institutions being able to promote racial equality. So I, I should unpack that a little bit. There was uh, America, obviously, uh, and Canada also, which we can get to, has a very long history of kind of formal legal inequality, laws that literally said, uh, you know, black people are second class citizens, they have fewer rights. The passage of civil rights acts, which were meant to end second class citizenship, at least in theory, were meant to say, okay, we have a long history of racial inequality. If we have formal legal equality in terms of race, then racism will kind of disappear from American society. Uh, the issue, of course, is that a lot of racial inequality was entrenched, was not only uh, mediated by legal institutions, but by social, political, economic institutions. And so a lot of the critical race theory scholars were, uh, I'd say, not surprised by the failure of civil rights to bring about kind of racial emancipation and equality because multiple centuries of racial subordination uh, don't just disappear when you allow both people to use the same water fountain. Um, there are various forms of entrenched inequality that you also have to attack. And, and in particular, you have to attack from a race-conscious perspective. They, they were very much of the view that liberal legal equality actually couldn't really advance substantive racial equality because so much of the inequality that was deliberately constructed over multiple centuries was so entrenched within American society. So you actually had to take a color conscious approach. You had to do things like affirmative action, which is a kind of classic example of a race conscious approach to correct or cure the forms of inequality that had been entrenched after so many centuries of, of discrimination. For sure. Yeah. So I think there's a, a lot there that we can kind of dig into a little bit more. Maybe just to start, though, I, I think it might be helpful. You had mentioned the Canadian context, but I'd like to, to get a little bit more um, depth on that, because I think a, a lot of people focus on the American case and don't really know as much about like racial injustice in the Canadian context. Yeah, no. So uh, and this is actually a common refrain from those who resist critical race perspectives in the Canadian context. Race uh, as a concept is definitely geographically situated. And so you want to take specific account of the history and context of wherever you're doing your analysis in careful ways. So that I actually agree with. Uh, what I disagree with is that uh, the need to take that context into account categorically removes critical race theory in terms of its relevance or salience to understanding inequality in the Canadian context or in other contexts. And so if you look at or if you understand Canada and the United States as settler colonial states, where European powers came, stole a bunch of indigenous land, uh, stole a bunch of African labor, and then through various forms of legal and political mechanisms maintained inequality over centuries and are now holding themselves out as kind of paragons of liberty and equality. They have not identical but similar histories in which race matters and is significant. And the significance of that actually you can just talk about in relatively plain empirical terms. Right. So if you look at indigenous mass incarceration in Canada, if you look at anti-black police violence in Canada, if you look at violence and exploitation and precarity of of migrant racialized workers in Canada, there are various ways in which there is pretty obvious racial hierarchy. And critical race theory scholars would say specifically obvious racial hierarchy 
maintained by legal institutions. Uh, that the law is not kind of neutral with reference to these forms of inequality, but rather manufactures the conditions in which the exploitation of racialized people is made more, more easy or more accessible. And so in that sense, the pretty obvious racial inequality in Canada tells you, uh, or at least hints at uh, it having some type of history. And what I just briefly outlined a moment ago, that's part of that history. Canada and the U.S. have lots of differences, of course, but they're not so different. <laughs> and they're certainly not so different uh, that race matters in the United States, but is irrelevant in Canada. I would also point listeners, this is not totally relevant, but for, for a more in-depth idea of how laws can uphold racism, the book 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act is a really, really good example where it breaks down all of the ways that this one legal act kept and still and continues to keep Indigenous people in Canada in difficult, precarious situations. So that's a good example. And going back to the kind of the theme I was describing in terms of critical race theory scholars in America responding to the Civil Rights Act, the reason why CRT, I do think, actually can be quite instructive in analyzing racial hierarchy in the Canadian context, one of its, you know, its, its specific analyses of race in America won't always transpose perfectly, but a lot of the themes that are raised in critical race theory transpose actually quite elegantly. And, and one of those themes that I was gesturing at earlier is the idea of kind of like formal versus substantive racial equality, that uh, some people conceptualize a racist law or policy as a law which you know, lists racial groups and assigns rights to those groups based on race explicitly. We don't have a lot of those laws anymore. We do have some that are pretty close, actually, still, if you look at things like Bill 21 in Quebec. But a lot of what the CRT critique of persisting racial inequality was in the 80s and 90s and still today was that the end of formal racial apartheid in the United States did not bring about the end of racial inequality precisely because there are indirect ways in which racial inequality could be sustained. And so the Indian Act is a good example of explicitly racialist legislation insofar as it kind of accords rights in, with reference to race. That's not necessarily always negative or positive, right? Like if you talk about a race conscious program, you might actually, in terms of affirmative action, specifically want to bring about race in your analysis of how to make society more racially equal. But there's a lot of laws in Canada which are not that aren't like the Indian Act, that don't make specific reference to different groups, but which also maintain racial inequality, right? So, I'll, I mean, I'll give one example. In Canada, the laws that permit the hyper-exploitation of migrant labor, the vast majority of which is racialized people, uh, a critical race theory scholar would call that racist legislation. Like, ultimately, the, uh, and, you know, I don't have to go through all the details, but to the extent migrant farm workers are excluded from a majority of employment standards, in order to enable their exploitation uh, when a majority of those people are racialized, that, you know, it doesn't say if you're a farm worker from the Caribbean, you then have less rights. It just says if you're a migrant farm worker. But when you know systemically that a majority of the people who do that come from particular countries, that's something that a critical race theory scholar would pay attention to. They'd say this is a contemporary mode of racial exploitation, which does not formally operate at the level of race, but systemically does. Um, and so it's still significant. And that's the very reason why racial hierarchy persists. Oh, that's such a good example. Thank you. It, it brings to mind, um, I, because I worked on a cruise ship for a while, it brings to mind the fact that there are so few protections for cruise workers. And the majority of people working on cruises are from the global south, a lot are from the Philippines specifically. And maybe 
that's why there aren't more protections for cruise workers, you know? Like, it's complicated because it's international waters, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I got, I mean, whatever. We have a whole two-parter on cruise ships if people want to listen to rant about that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a really good example, yeah. (laughs) But but, but truly, right? Like, that's there's a significant alignment that you will see in terms of how legal institutions kind of structure power dynamics uh, within society and the extent to which those power dynamics are often structured to reinforce white power and to challenge non-white power. Like that is a that is a common orientation of power within uh, legal relations in Canada and in the United States uh, and apparently on cruise ships. <laughs> and so that kind of core idea the kind of transition from formal racial inequality to informal mechanisms that maintain the centuries of constructed racial inequality is pretty significant theme in critical race analysis. Yeah, um, I'm curious about sort of in this this sort of critique of the the liberal idea that you can have formal equality and that's enough. In critiquing this, does critical race theory put forward? A different approach? And, and if so, sort of what is that? So there's there's two ways I'll respond to this. So I'd actually, I should have said this at the outset, you know, critical race theory is like a, a massive group of scholars and, and themes and ideas. So there's, even in the context of critical race theory scholarship, I'd say there's like more and less liberal scholarship. There's like some scholars who are much more, like, you know, more or less radical, more or less institutional. There's a, there's a, a fair number of perspectives that are advanced um, in critical race theory. There's a pretty consistent commitment to, you know, advancing racial justice, the law not being a political, civil rights alone not bringing about racial equality. Like there's certain kind of, you know, I don't know if I want to call it tenets or core commitments or or themes that are characteristic of critical race theory. Uh, But outside of that, there's a lot of different perspectives and, and pretty active disagreement amongst critical race scholars. So on the topic of kind of a positive program, that's where there, there could be even more disagreement. You know, um, some critical race theory scholars, I'll, I'll use a blunt dichotomy. I'd say some are interested in repairing the relationship between legal institutions and uh, forms of racial subordination. So their program isn't kind of like retreat from law. It's kind of, uh, you know, the law in its uh, in its formality and in its supposed apolitical character is not able to do the work that we need it to do for racial justice. What are the ways in which we can improve the operation of legal institutions so that they are better oriented towards racial justice? I'd say there's a, there's a, there's a group of scholars who do that kind of work. Some of my work does that. I'd say there are other scholars who would also identify with critical race theory as a, as a movement who view the law with greater skepticism, who see the law as a relatively elite institution in which racial minorities are unlikely to wield a significant amount of power. And so who would look more to social movements, who would look more to kind of critiques of capitalism and uh, settler colonialism and, and, and would wield kind of colonial institutions less in their advocacy or political struggle. I actually think both of these, and I do some of that argument too, I, I think both of these arguments are, are very important. Um, but in terms of a positive program, I wouldn't say there's any single or monolithic monolithic kind of CRT approach. I think there's more, and I think that's where the kind of term critical at the beginning comes from. I think there is an emphasis on critique in the tradition of CRT, but in terms of where that critique then leads in terms of positive program, I'd say there's there's different kind of camps within critical race theory that do different work. You might have someone proposing revisions to the constitution to better advance racial justice, uh, you might have another critical race theory scholar talking about 
the need to move away from legal institutions because of their fundamentally elitist character and the need for greater participation in social movements to challenge uh, structural inequality in society. I think both of those arguments can be fairly characterized as CRT arguments. And even calling something a CRT argument is uh, kind of designation that people can can reasonably disagree about. I, you know, in my own scholarship, I draw a lot on you know anti-colonial literature, on cultural studies, on feminist legal theory. Um, there's a lot of different areas of scholarship that I find animating and, and helpful in my own analysis. And so, whether or not someone might label themselves a critical race theory scholar, to the extent those kind of central commitments are being advanced, it's part of a broader body of scholarship that's all moving towards forms of racial justice struggle that I think can be helpful in our analysis of what's wrong and where we should go in the future. Yeah. And one one of the things that surprised me when I was doing some sort of background reading for this is the roots of critical legal studies, critical race theory in other movements like radical feminism. So I'm wondering, like, to what extent do you think there's sort of like a shared program among various types of critique? Um, like, do you think that it's sort of fair to say that critical race theory focuses on race, but like has a lot of the same presuppositions? No, that's a great question. And I think it kind of depends on the like scale of abstraction that you're operating at. So, you know, I, I said earlier that analysis of race, it's very important for it to be kind of specifically situated in terms of like time and space like race race does does really different things at different times which is itself a kind of i'd say tenet of critical race theory that and we can get into this i'm sure we'll get into this later but you know uh critical race theory scholars will talk about how race is, is social not biological and so the meaning of race is constructed not intrinsically but based on certain political contexts so because of that when you're talking about race you have to be really careful about not just flattening, let's say, the racial hierarchies that exist in one country into another, uh, because race can take on different meaning within different spaces. Now, that being said, if you kind of zoom out, not from race per se, but just zoom out in terms of how abstract you want to talk about some of the problems that we're engaging with, I'd say different critical or minority perspectives on law at the highest level will have similar ideas and presuppositions that animate their critique of law. I'll give one example, which is the easiest example. Whether or not you're talking about critical race theory or indigenous legal theory or feminist legal theory, the notion of law as kind of political and unavoidably political institution is something that I'd say all of these areas pretty consistently talk about and analyze. And in particular, the notion that law does not function neutrally that there are biases that inform the process of the interpretation of law, the creation of law. I say all of these different areas are at times emphasizing that, but using different types of hierarchy to make that point legible. So if you have a critical race theory scholar, they might talk about, you know, Brown v. Board of Education in the United States and describe the specific ways in which racial segregation in public schools in the American South was a practice of racial subordination, right? So they will talk about that and they will say that, you know, separate but equal, which was a doctrine in American constitutional law, they will say that that was a contradiction. Really, like racial segregation was discriminatory and more sophisticated understanding of race and the significance of racial segregation tells you actually quite plainly that this is a discriminatory practice. Feminist scholars will do the same thing, right? They will 
uh, or you know, a similar thing. They will look at the relationship between legal institutions and women, and they can talk about how this is not just neutrally applying in society, that these legal institutions are discriminating in effect against women or reinforcing with gender hierarchy. So, you know, I can't remember the exact year, but like marital rape in Canada was like legal until I think the 80s. So it was like impossible to sexually assault your wife. Feminist scholars had something to say about that, right? Like they're like, this is not some accident or some neutral law. This is a law which is institutionalizing patriarchy within society. And so we want to talk about that. We want to write against that. We want to respond to that because we see the law not as neutral, but as biased and in particular sexist. And so in that sense, that kind of instinct towards critique of the biased operation of legal institutions, you can see that in critical race theory, feminist legal theory, queer legal theory, indigenous legal theory. How they go about doing that is not identical, but that kind of core supposition, I'd say, animates a lot of minority perspectives. Thanks. I think that's really helpful. And I want to get into to something you were talking about in your answer a little bit there um, about sort of the social construction of race and also how related to that, you sort of have to analyze critical race theory um, in like a historical perspective and has to be situated. So I guess first, can you talk about what it means for race to be socially constructed? And then sort of secondly, how that plays itself out in research? Yeah. So I think one of the most significant tenets of critical race theory is the social construction of race. But I also want to be careful in saying that because a lot of the opposition to critical race theory uses kind of inflammatory language. So they'll describe critical race theory. You know, if, if you Google like critical race theory, National Post, you'll find a bunch of articles that, that conveniently never cite any critical race theory scholarship, but have very strong views about critical race theory's kind of radical or extremist positions. And so the social construction of race, which is something that's kind of axiomatic in critical race theory, is also just axiomatic in the academy in like serious scholarly discussion. So it's it's the kind of near consensus position of geneticists, biologists, anthropologists, sociologists, cultural studies, critical race theory, etc. So to call it a kind of position held by critical race theory scholars is, is not quite right. It is a position held by CRT scholars, but it's also essentially fact that race is social as opposed to biological. Sort of in the same way that climate scientists all think climate is... <laughs> Climate is changing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You know, we've been talking about legal institutions being biased. Uh, you know, the academy has, has, you know, strong positions on things also at times. And so, yes, race is a social construction. This is uh, held by CRT scholars, but also just serious scholars across the academy. Uh, and the meaning of that is that racial categories, what we have come to understand to be racial categories, are the product of political negotiation. They are not intrinsic to people. There are not really t like biological or genetic tests that map onto the groups that we have assigned into racial taxonomies. Rather, they have been the product of political imagination. This is relatively obvious when you think of the like crude racial categories that exist within our imagination. It's like all of society's like red, white, black, or red, uh, or like um, or yellow. Like these like really crude categories, which obviously cannot begin to accurately represent uh, human diversity. So yes, in one sense, they're social just because they emerge at various political moments through a mix of economic and sociological factors, which we don't need to go like too deep in the well on right now. But the important thing is not only that race is socially constructed, that it's a product of kind of political negotiation. The important thing is why that is, or what the implications of that are. And so 
race science or the idea that different racial categories are biological was and has been and continues to be to a certain extent deployed in order to justify what would otherwise be dehumanizing practices of racial subordination, right? So the Holocaust is an obvious and horrific example of when a political program centered on an understanding of scientific race reaches its kind of inevitable end of justifying what would otherwise be unjustifiable practices on the basis of intrinsic racial inferiority. And race science also animated chattel slavery, right? So the idea of Africans as inherently inferior, as ultimately subhuman, uh, was part of how these otherwise kind of enlightenment liberal philosophers justified what would otherwise be unjustified. We are huge fans of human liberty other than the treatment of African people who are subhuman. And so race science often tends to drift towards that justification of the unjustified and uh, has historically and still in the present been used to explain persisting inequalities without reference to the reinforcement and uh, entrenchment of those inequalities through uh, political programs. So people will look at, you know, indigenous mass incarceration across North America and people can say, well, maybe Indigenous people are just intrinsically inferior, like, right? You know, less intelligent, uh, more prone to criminality. These are all obviously racist arguments, but they're arguments that a biological conception of race enables. And so that's part of why race as a social construction is very important. Once you understand that these racial categories are arbitrary, the significant alignment around which hierarchies have been built on these arbitrary categories should raise our moral concerns. Right. Like the fact that there is such overwhelming patterns of inequality drawn around entirely arbitrary categories should be, uh, you know, inequality should always be concerning. But patterns of inequality around entirely arbitrary groupings is particularly alarming in terms of the obvious relationship between settler colonialism, chattel slavery and forms of racial inequality that we see today. And so that's why race as a social construction can be very significant. But one caveat I want to give to that is that the idea of race as social is another thing that strategically racist policy has attempted to move around. So before we were talking about the Civil Rights Act in the United States and then racial equality not following. Part of the reason for that is how practices of racial subordination evolve for those practices to continue, despite society having new perspectives on how we should treat people. And this is the same with race science. So it's now pretty unacceptable to think that black people are intrinsically unintelligent. That's not really in vogue anymore, which is good. But the argument then shifts, right? So it becomes, okay, well, maybe there's no biological races, but maybe black people are just culturally inferior. And so what you see is once the notion of black people as a scientifically discrete group is jettisoned, that doesn't stop uh, justification of racial inequality. It simply shifts justification of racial inequality. And so where you saw the conversation shift in the United States and in Canada as well was to a cultural articulation. Black people, indigenous people, these are groups with cultural inferiority. Uh, if only their cultures were as, as family-oriented, as uh, productive, as intelligent, as uh, or, you know, as caring about study as white culture, then these groups would be doing just as well. And so even the moment at which we set aside the biological explanation of racial inequality, that doesn't end the argument. All it does is stop that argument briefly until kind of white supremacist society comes up with a new justification for why there's inequality. And actually, if you look carefully, cultural justifications for racial inequality in North America uh, are pervasive. 
right? Like there's actually, you know, that argument now, which I think is just as racist, really, as the biological justification is all over the media, is all over explanations for inequality within society. And so it does the work that race science did before. And, and that and that's why we have to pay really close attention, not just to prior positions that we've refuted, but how those positions reformulate over time. It's so wild to me that, the like, and I, you're right, I see cultural justifications everywhere. And it's just so frustrating that people can justify like, oh, these people are just lesser because their culture isn't as good, and yet at the same time be taking their favorite things from that culture and appropriating them in ways to, like, profit themselves in a lot of cases. Um, Kristen and I did a whole episode on cultural appropriation, and it's just it's so unfair. <laughs> it's so unfair. How can you in one sentence say the culture is inferior and in the next breath say, except for these things that I'm going to take and monetize? Like, <laughs> it's capitalism. <laughs> yeah, capitalism. Uh, there's, so there's, there's two things there, right? One one thing is uh, black culture's lit, right? So uh, it's like, so it's like, it's like totally absurd to be like, oh, their culture's worse. It's like our culture's better, actually. Um, but also... <laughs> But also the important thing is the ways in which the cultural explanation obscures the very obvious practices of subordination that maintain inequality, right? So people will say uh, in Canada and in the United States, people will talk about, well, you know, black families just don't care about education. They won't talk about the like catastrophic underfunding of schools where black children tend to go. They won't talk about the relationship between economic precarity in the home and your ability to focus on your studies. They won't talk about tons of scholarship on differential rates of discipline between black, indigenous, and white students, right? All of these things that we know are reinforcing racial inequality in education specifically evaporate when we say simply that the explanation for these inequalities is the individual lack of desire to study amongst black people. And so that's, you know, the alibi function that culture is performing is actually identical to the biological argument, right? You see it as uh, a near mirror as explanation without any reference to societal structures. And so that's the obvious reason why that argument is presented. Any argument that provides an alibi for the state, specifically settler colonial states that have practiced, mul practiced multiple centuries of racial subordination, any argument that completely erases that history and says these individual black people just don't want to be educated, that's the political function of that argument, which is why critical race theory scholars are so resistant to those arguments, because they're fundamentally racist arguments. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great point. Um, and I want to sort of talk, you know, we've, we've talked about race as a social construct and what that means and how it's evolved. But I'm curious to, to hear a little bit more on like this process of racialization and why that means we have to sort of look at race as it's constructed in different contexts? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many different examples that we can look at to talk about the process of racialization. Different scholars of race will have different perspectives on how race is made and what they would call race. Cedric Robinson, who wrote a book called Black Marxism, talked about racialization in, in like pre-colonial Europe amongst what we would now consider white groups under current racial taxonomies, but talked about the ways in which 
a kind of language or, or vocabulary of race was deployed even at that time to justify kind of different groups that were warring with each other and about how that group was different and intrinsically different. And that's why we're justified in doing what we're doing. So um, there's a lot of contestation around what it means for something to be a racial category. But if you look at if you think of like Italian and Irish immigrants when they came to North America, they were understood within certain periods as non-white and now currently are definitely thought of as white. And that's because what race fundamentally relates to is like otherness. Like, is this an other group who by virtue of that otherness, we feel justified in treating differently, who we feel justified in not trusting? So like those types of examples can tell you about how race over time, how race in specific groups can really shift, right? And someone, you know, an Irish person in Ireland at that time was in in the isolated setting of Ireland was ostensibly white. Once they traveled to somewhere else, they might become non-white because race isn't about a fixed attribute that the person carries, but is about relations of of otherness and power within specific societal settings. You can think of the racial categorization of Jewish people, which is like a very complicated subject, right? Like in the context of the Holocaust, Jewish people were unquestionably non-white. The entire point of the Holocaust was forms of racial subordination and the contrast between Aryan and other racial categories. Jewish people now in Canadian society, that's a more complicated question, right? The, the nature of whiteness is not a fixed category. It's not something that doesn't change over time. It's something that relates different groups to one another based on context and history and geography. There's a very famous critical race theory article that talked about, that examined the nature of, of Mexican people as a racial category. And some people would say, no, Mexican people are an ethnicity, not a racial category. And Ian Haney Lopez, who uh, wrote a kind of canonical critical race theory article, essentially argued that the moment at which someone's going to say, you know, we need a wall at the border to keep them out. We have signs on shops that say no Mexicans allowed. The moment at which kind of that happens, you have an ostensibly racial category, like it becomes a racial category. It's not about whether or not something is intrinsically a race or an ethnicity. It's about practices of otherness and subordination. And so that's that's where the kind of subtlety of analysis of racial uh, categorization comes from. It's really not something that you can kind of take a blood test and figure out who's, who or what someone is or what category they belong to. You have to look at the social context of a practice and a society to gain a, a greater cultural awareness of what's happening and whether or not it's a racial practice. This is actually reflected in the Supreme Court of the United States decision in Brown v. Board of Education. Right. So the kind of formal liberal paradigm was if these are just separate schools with equal facilities, by the way, they did not have equal facilities. But for the sake of argument, if these are just separated schools, what's inherently discriminatory in that? Some argued there's nothing inherently discriminatory in different schools. You know, that's fine. You can put people into camps. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the Supreme Court's decision, one of the things they said was that when we know that the cultural or symbolic meaning of the separation was the inferiority of black students and black people. Right. And we say that, you know, in 2023, we say that without question. In 1964, many people thought that was relatively obvious. Some did not. But when we say the cultural or symbolic significance is where we understand the practice to be one that is racially subordinating, we say that you can only really understand race or racism in a culturally situated way. And, you know, people might even disagree on this, but not all practices of segregation are necessarily discriminatory. 
right? You know, there are in Toronto Afrocentric schools that aren't about keeping white students from the black students. They're about like educating black students within a culturally supportive space, et cetera. And Afrocentric, you know, without taking a strong position on Afrocentric schools, Afrocentric schools in Toronto in 2023 are not the same thing as black only schools in Alabama in 1940. And so again, even the mere fact of what one might call segregation does not end the analysis, right? You have to actually analyze what is happening in the society. What is the reason for this? What is the effect of this? All of that context is what more critical scholars will say, will say is necessary to actually do political analysis of these state practices. Others will say, well, no, we just look, is there segregation? Is there not segregation? Is there this? Is there that? And that kind of formal liberal instinct is what a lot of critical scholars say can never meaningfully analyze race or racism. Yeah, I'm curious about like how I had read some stuff in preparing for this that suggested to me class was very tied up um, in in critical race theory. Um, But I'm hesitant to assume that that's true because it is such a sort of diverse discipline. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how class fits into critical race theory. I mean, so there's a lot of different scholarly opinions and scholarly disagreements, not about whether there is a relationship between race and class. I think virtually, you know, I've, well, how strongly do I want to put this? I, I haven't really engaged with like serious scholars not seeing connections between race and class. Um, there's definitely connections between them. There are different people who see, see it as a kind of chicken and egg problem, right? Do class relations create racial categories? Do racial categories create class relations, etc.? Um, and and some scholars who are like, actually, the order doesn't really matter. We just know that they're so thoroughly entangled that we have to talk about them simultaneously. And so, yeah, I'd say different CRT scholars come to this conversation differently. I haven't really seen CRT scholars not seeing class as a very significant element of the construction of racial categories and the maintenance of racial hierarchy. I think that a lot of CRT scholars would be anti-capitalist. Uh, maybe not all, but certainly a lot of them would be. And a lot of what race has accomplished historically and continues to accomplish is the justification of practices of economic exploitation. So like chattel slavery, obviously, uh, is a practice of severe economic exploitation, the theft of labor. But you can see, you know, the theft of indigenous land as obviously economically motivated um, and motivated by the construction of the nation state. The migrant farm workers that I mentioned earlier are also obviously a practice of of economic exploitation, and these tend to fall along racial lines. So there's not, I'd say it's pretty hard to do serious engagement with practices of racial subordination and to not have the market in mind. And if you look at, you know, the grotesque racial inequality in places like the United States, uh, but not only the United States, you see a trend also of, of, of hyper-capitalist economic relations. And so this is why if you look at you know, maternal mortality rates or access to health care or quality of education or mass incarceration, depending on your politics, you see all of these things as you know, not entirely determined by class relations, but pretty significantly informed by how your society must be politically structured in order to enable the continued capitalist exploitation of workers. You know, I can give a couple examples, but it's like with such significant economic inequality, you you know, you need prisons. You need somewhere to put people who slip through the cracks to hide them away from society. So you do not see the obvious casualties of your, you know, indefensible economic system. You need police to enforce uh, the protection of private property. 
uh, within a society with constantly increasing economic inequality. You need the military to go abroad in order to reinforce, you know, global economic relations in a way that continues hypercapitalist exploitation, not only within the United States, but abroad, uh, going abroad for oil, going abroad for mining uh, and resources that you need to continue those practices. So, you know, depending on your politics, you see a lot of these legal institutions not as entirely determined by race per se, but thoroughly entangled with notions of racial hierarchy and justification that is related to race. And so I think a lot of the different things that you look at in, you know, in North American society, uh, reference to race can help shift into focus what's going on. You can see the same thing, right? And it's not just race, right? Like you can look, you can look at gender and you can look at things like not only gender, but you can look at things like in the United States where there's largely at will employment, where your healthcare is tied to your employment for most people. That's obviously manufactured precarity, right? Like the moment at which you know, if you are someone who wants to have a child in the next five years and you work in a hyper exploitive environment, but that environment is the setting in which your healthcare is granted to you, the ability for your employer to exploit you with near impunity is enhanced. That is a, you know, that's a structural component of private healthcare. These are all examples of how, how your kind of uh, legal and political order is set up enables exploitation. Uh, and then that exploitation, if you look at race, if you look at gender, they tell you a lot. If you look at uh, citizenship, these all tell you things about how the state enables its practices to be maintained in ways that are understood to be justified, even though they're like grotesquely discriminatory. Yeah, I think that's a really sort of important part of the discussion. Uh, I wonder if we can turn now to something that I came across called unique voice of color. Um, if I understood it correctly, it was this idea that having minority status, if you're looking at race, um, having racial minority status being racialized brings a presumed competence to sort of speak on these issues um, and that storytelling needs to be more involved in sort of our scholarship around power relations and things like that. So I guess my first question is, did I explain that right? <laughs> Secondly, can you elaborate on it if so? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is everything I'm discussing today are um, kind of snippets of how these arguments are described but then also within the crt canon there's like critique and resistance to kind of the extent of the argument or how the argument is deployed um and actually so you know voice of color is is a good example of that so and this is another one where the kind of different minority perspectives have similar perspectives right so uh whether or not it's feminist legal theory or indigenous legal theory or critical race theory a lot of these areas are obviously led by the groups who are members in uh, the subordinated class, not exclusively, but a lot of the scholars who write in those areas are from those groups. And also, there is varying levels of deference within people of a particular political persuasion in terms of how they talk about those issues. Now, this is itself a kind of vexing subject and you know i would call it a vexing subject in the context of critical race theory you use the phrase presumed competence and i think i would describe it uh though i am not the you know uh the orthodoxy of crt i would describe it at more systemic as opposed to individual level so when crt scholars were emerging in a near exclusively white academy they were of the view that more, more voices of color would bring challenge to the entrenched whiteness of the academic space and would 
have greater facility with seeing the forms of racial bias institutionalized in the academy and in legal institutions, uh, in part because they had, for many of them, lived through that experience or noticed patterns that they were more sensitive to than perhaps their white colleagues. And so that comment is more, you know, if you have a faculty that is like 30 white scholars and there are no black scholars on that faculty, I would view with some skepticism whether or not the kind of rigor of their analysis of race was like totally up to par. Um, not because white people can't analyze race. Uh, some of my favorite critical race theory scholars or, or articles were, were written by, you know, thoughtful white scholars. And there are some like super anti-CRT black people. So that it's not about any kind of guarantee that someone from a particular group will have a set of commitments or even a rigor of analysis. But when you look at a specific space, uh, you know, if you look at an all-male judiciary, uh, which it was historically, you know, their treatment of issues that impact women is probably not going to be wonderful. So, yeah, if you view, you can view it individually or you can view it systemically. If you view it individually, you could say there's a kind of presumed competence in the individual. I, I'm more attracted to the kind of systemic claim that within certain settings or populations, uh, a greater diversity of perspectives uh, and experiences that are brought in is can function as like a loose safeguard in terms of greater understanding of different people's experiences. And so that, you know, what I'm uh, trying to explain carefully is where the uh, kind of conflict around voices of color or like, uh, or, um, uh, you know, standpoint epistemology, there's, there's various, this isn't unique to critical race theory, but there's various traditions that will talk about the importance of bringing certain experiences and perspectives into scholarly conversation, which I do agree with, but is an argument that I think can be run a bit too aggressively. There are definitely, you know, if you look at the Supreme Court of the United States, Clarence Thomas, who's a black man, uh, is one of the most conservative judges on the court. Amy Coney Barrett, who is a white woman, is one of the most conservative judges on the court also. Her with respect to, you know, feminist issues, him with respect to race issues. So the voice of color thesis isn't about any guarantee of membership and ideology. It is about patterns of belief and experience within particular populations and the ways in which that should inform our understanding of scholarly knowledge. And th this is an unsurprising thesis to be advanced by a group of racialized scholars in the United States responding to a majority white academy, which is relatively uninterested in questions of race. Right. So if you, you know, you have all these racialized students who are like, we should really talk about race when we learn about criminal law. And then your white criminal law professor who's like, what do you mean? Race isn't relevant. <laughs> um, and so uh, racialized professors, racialized professors who may have friends and family who have had contact with the criminal punishment system, not guaranteed, but more likely, just empirically, are likely to think that race is a, a salient subject of inquiry when having those conversations. And so that's kind of the thesis. No, no guarantee, but an, an appreciation for how having more people from particular communities can be helpful. This, this has also become, I'd say, more vexing over time with kind of liberal co-optation of a voice of color thesis, right? So now that identity politics is being very significantly co-opted by state institutions, actually you see lots of uh, minority people in state institutions, way more kind of black chiefs of police, way more women in politics, uh, which is something I, I, I support in the abstract. But the, the point of this thesis was that actually the ideology that is represented within spaces like the academy that are predominantly white, it is important to shift that ideology in a way that's more racially progressive. 
Uh, and if the state or in the academy using the voice of color thesis, not to promote a kind of ideological shift, but rather to resist to the ideology that is already characteristic of that institution, then actually the voice of color thesis is paradoxically being used to do the exact opposite work that it was meant to, right? If you bring in a bunch of conservative minorities into certain spaces to keep them conservative, I'd say critical race theory scholars would be the first people to tell you that that is a perversion of what the voice of color thesis was seeking to accomplish. And so in the specific context of the co-optation of identity politics in the current political moment, I'd say there's some apprehension at times around how notions of representation are deployed. Okay, that makes sense. So sort of a broad idea that representation can be helpful for bringing different perspectives to light, important perspectives, but it's not a guarantee. I want to talk about sort of like why critical race theory can be helpful. But before we move into that, are there any concepts of CRT that we've missed in the discussion that you'd want to bring forward? So I talked previously about uh, the law not being neutral. I'd say a related concept, which is actually kind of more in the critical legal studies realm, but comes up a lot in critical race theory as well as indeterminacy. So another thing that critical scholars will talk about is that, you know, while the law places certain boundaries around how you interpret things, that actually with enough conceptual sophistication and an effective pen, you can go in pretty different directions in your interpretation of the law. And this is really easy to understand if you just look at constitutional text, right? Like in Canada, you have a right to life, uh, liberty, and security of the person. And those are like catastrophically broad categories, uh, the meaning of which in terms of our constitutional rights could go in a lot of different directions. And so critical scholars will often uh, communicate that actually, you know, you know, representation on the judiciary is significant. The politics of the judiciary is significant because uh, though we are told that there are rigorous methodologies that will result in very clear and predictable outcomes, critical scholars say just the opposite. And not just critical scholars, you know, feminist, critical, uh, indigenous, legal, etc. They look at jurisprudence and they say, actually, what you call objectivity is just white subjectivity. You know, we read those exact same words and come to very different conclusions, actually, uh, on what we think even a reasonable interpretation of that language is. And so notions of indeterminacy, I'd say, are quite significant in critical race theory, uh, particularly in the legal academy. When you know that the interpretation of law, even once law is settled down in a statute or in a constitution, when you know that those interpretations can be quite subjective, that's relevant to your political inquiry about legal institutions. It's not simply about, you know, finding smart people to put on the bench to ensure that laws are applied justly and fairly. Um, actually, the politics that those people hold is going to influence their understanding of language because language is itself indeterminate. And so I'd say that's a pretty uh, significant aspect of critical race analysis also. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for bringing that forward. All right, let's move to why, now that we've given an, sort of an understanding of what critical race theory is, why is it something that's a helpful framework for understanding, let's go with Canadian society, but societies in general? I think that, and I, you know, I'll betray my own bias. I'm definitely a scholar who draws a fair amount on critical race theory, but I think CRT is important for understanding Canadian law because it looks at Canadian law much more candidly. You know, someone could say that we have a set of methodological 
structures in Canadian jurisprudence that ensure the predictable interpretation of Canadian law. I think that's just not true. I, you know, in the in the case law I've read, in the work that I've done, in the scholarship that I've written, actually routinely when you look at Canadian law, patterns emerge, in particular patterns around not the inevitable interpretation of various laws in service of white supremacy, but the biased interpretation of the lo- those laws as such. And so if you want to, you know, setting aside your politics of the state, right, like setting aside whether or not you think we should look to courts or look to elections as an effective mode of social change, prerequisite to figuring out how you do social change, political struggle, advanced justice, is just understanding at the basic level how these institutions operate. And I think critical race theory is very helpful for understanding how legal institutions operate in relation to race. So before you can think of a solution, assuming you see a problem, I think the diagnosis is very important. And so the themes that we've been talking about throughout this podcast, I think are very important parts of the diagnosis of the problem. Right? If you understand race as a social construction, not as a biological inevitability, then the fact that some prisons in the prairies have, in terms of their female inmates, 98% of them are indigenous. When race is not this kind of biological inevitability, that statistic is catastrophic, right? It's, it's like, okay, this is essentially just a prison only for indigenous people. That's significant. That tells us something about the relationship, I would argue, between settler colonialism and current practices of racial subordination. Similarly, if we talk about things like I was just saying, in the indeterminacy of law, then the clean separation between politics, you know, the legislature and law, courts, that's a dichotomy that's not sustainable. Actually, you know, in fact, who you put on the bench very significantly influences how the law as passed is ultimately interpreted. And so whether or not you think we should go to politics or to the courts or to the streets to do political struggle, understanding that the ideology of the judiciary very significantly influences its processes of interpretation, that they don't simply you know, find law, but truly make law in the process of their interpretation, that's an integral component to uh, rigorous critique and understanding of the relationship between the political institutions that exist in Canada. And so CRT is doing a lot of that conceptual work, I'd say. There's also CRT scholars who are doing, who, you know, who are advancing arguments about where to go next. But I'd say the most important thing that a lot of critical legal scholarship does, not just race, critical legal scholarship more broadly, is attempting to accurately describe how these institutions work so that you can then decide how you respond to them, right? You might look at the biased operation of the judiciary and say, okay, let's fix bias in the judiciary right? Or you might say the judiciary is super biased and I don't know that this is a form of bias that we're ever truly going to overcome, right? So you can actually go in antagonistic directions once the critique of the political operation of the judiciary is understood. But that critique, regardless of which direction you go, I'd say is essential to meaningfully understanding what it is you are then responding to. Yeah, for sure. In order to actually address a problem, you need to be able to see it. So <laughs> that's really important. In Canada, uh, race problems are routinely unseen, right? And this is this is an example of where Canada and America are quite different. Uh, not that America is its own racial paradise, obviously, but the narratives and the mythology around Canada and the United States are are different, right? Canada positions itself as this idyllic end of the Underground Railroad. 
And so conversation about race in the Canadian context is met with a specifically Canadian resistance, right? Uh, there's a, a, a specific resistance animated by the contrast with our southern neighbors, right? The idea that there's no race issues here because look at how bad the race issues are there. And the fact is, depending on what metrics you're using, certain race issues here are even worse than they are in the United States, right? Canada's practices of mining in the global south are some of the worst practices, right? Canada's border enforcement is a human rights catastrophe. This kind of like mythology of uh, Canadian multiculturalism is complicit in the construction of the Canadian nation state. And it's a construction that is, has been actually quite durable in resisting conversations of race specifically, right? Despite the fact of, as I've been saying throughout the podcast, very obvious forms of racial inequality in Canada, right? It's very hard to have certain conversations about race in Canada, at times even harder than having those conversations in the United States, uh, because Canada has been so effective at developing a racial reputation that is entirely at odds with the material condition of racialized people within Canada. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I don't know if this is an answerable question, but this idea of multiculturalism as sort of like a, a form of reputation laundering, I, I'm wondering whether, do you have perspectives on whether you think it's doing more harm than good? Or do you think it's... Multiculturalism? Yeah, I mean, the concept is for acting as a shield. Uh, <laughs> I think more harm for sure. I, I think multi, you know, I'm not anti-multiculturalism conceptually, um, but what, you know, the idea of multiculturalism in the Canadian context is one that, that obscures the obvious participation of the Canadian state in practices of racial subordination, right? So it, it, it creates the vision of Canadian society as this racial paradise, right? When, when a black man in Toronto is 20 times more likely to be fatally shot by by police than a white person, or as I've said multiple times, whether or not we look at the exploitation of migrant farm workers, whether we look at the mass incarceration of indigenous people, all of these things are, are specifically meant to be obscured by notions of multiculturalism, right? That actually Canada is this place that you can come and be yourself and there's no problems. That's not true, right? Like Canada has various practices of racial subordination and the narrative of multiculturalism is one of the core narratives that convinces society, that develops a hegemonic politics that is the opposite of what the actual condition of racialized people in Canada is. This is where, you know, people will describe critical race theory as, uh, as you know, anti-empirical. It's actually deeply empirical, right? So, like, if you look at prisons, if you look at policing, if you look at education, if you look at the academy, all of these are places where you can look and see, hmm, there are various forms of entrenched racial inequality. I wonder why that is. And then you can ask the question and you can investigate it. And various humanities scholars have investigated it. But the idea of multiculturalism is meant to obscure that, right? In Canada in 2023, we have a province that has effectively banned Muslim women from the public service, right? So what does multiculturalism mean in this context, right? Like multiculturalism is doing the work of obscuring the obvious practices of racial inequality that exist in Canada today. That, to me, is its primary political project. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's not something I had thought about before, but you make a really compelling argument. <laughs> I'm curious if you talk a little bit about your, your work specifically and sort of how critical race th theory sort of feeds into it. I mean, I'll start academically. So I'm an assistant professor at Lincoln Alexander. Lincoln Alexander School of Law at the Toronto Metropolitan University, the longest 
law school name, I think, in North America. So yeah, critical race theory is, is not, like I said before, is not the only tradition that I draw on, but is definitely significantly influential in the work that I do. I teach four different courses, all of which are pretty influenced by critical race theory. I teach an intro course on legal theory. And even so, even, you know, this is a perfect example of whiteness in the academy, right? The conventional legal theory course will concentrate very heavily on various debates amongst old white men about metaphysics and law. And will often give, you know, belated and limited attention to critical perspectives on law. My course is the opposite. So, we, you know, we do some of those earlier metaphysical uh, questions. Then a lot of it is critical perspectives um, in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of the nation, in terms of labor, a bunch of different uh, sites of oppression. And so that course is definitely a critically inspired examination of legal theory for students who are being introduced to our legal program. I also, in the first year curriculum, teach criminal law. But more, you know, more accurately, I teach, uh, you know, criminal punishment and abolition. You know, we talk about criminal law. We talk about criminal procedure. We also talk about things that are often not brought up in criminal law courses, though they're brought up in some because there are some very thoughtful criminal law scholars in Canada. Uh, But we'll talk about the social construction of crime. You know, we'll talk about how the designation of criminality is itself a heavily politically contested concept um, and how now it's criminal in parts of the United States to assist someone in seeking an abortion. Right. So it's not criminal law isn't just about people doing harm. Right. Criminal law is an idea uh, about, you know, where the state designates what it considers to be harmful. And the state justifies very harsh practices of punishment in response to that at times in ways that students might be um, amenable to at times where students would be appalled at what is ultimately criminalized. So we'll look at things like that. We'll look at abolition. We'll look at whether or not criminal punishment is even doing what it purports to do in terms of rehabilitation, in terms of the promotion of safety. Uh, We'll look at police violence and the ways in which those practices are heavily racialized. So all of those things are also in my criminal law course, uh, because I think the context of criminal law is an ethical obligation for students to have greater familiarity with when they learn about criminal law. And then my upper year courses are very obviously influenced by critical race theory. One, because one of those courses is critical race theory. The other course is called Law and Injustice, uh, and it's our kind of law and social movements course. Uh, And again, if you're talking about law and political struggle, race is for sure part of the conversation. We also talk about gender, uh, you know, migrant workers, uh, sexuality, etc. We talk about lots of things. But race obviously is a significant site of inequality in Canadian society and globally. And so we talk about that, too. In terms of my scholarship, it's heavily influenced by critical race theory insofar as I often write about race. Uh, and insofar as I often draw on arguments that would be characterized as critical race scholarship. So some of my more recent articles, uh, the last article I wrote uh, was about a recent uh, decision from the Supreme Court about juries and jury diversity. And that's a perfect example of what I was talking about before in terms of both the voice of color thesis and kind of entrenched whiteness within specific spaces. So that case was kind of about whether or not racial representation on juries is relevant to their impartiality. Your understanding of race totally influences your analysis, right? If you think if you think the role of juries is entirely extricated from notions of race, they're simply finding facts, um, then an all-white jury in a case where a black man is accused of assaulting a white police officer is not, you know, is of no moment. It doesn't really matter. They're just simply figuring out what happened. If you think race is a political idea that significantly influences how people think about things in society, then an all-white jury might be something that you are concerned about in terms of whether or not that jury is going to be impartial, just as an all-male jury in a sexual assault trial might raise certain flags for you in terms of whether or not that's going to be an impartial jury. 
So in that article, I did a kind of critical race critique of the Supreme Court's decision, which I argue kind of vindicated systemically white juries. They were ultimately like, we have some all white juries. There's no, nothing to see here. No issues about impartiality. I think that position is itself position animated by whiteness. I think if you understand the significant significance of race in society, then you would understand that systemically white juries are actually a, a, a catastrophic issue with respect to their impartiality. So that's a recent article I wrote. I'm also working on an article right now uh, concerning the U of T scandal, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with the U of T scandal, but for the listeners more broadly, a scholar who had written you know, entirely mainstream criticisms of human rights atrocities committed by the Israeli state against Palestinians ultimately had their appointment terminated at the last minute after uh, contact with a tax court judge in Canada who raised concerns about her scholarship being biased against Israel. And so this is another setting in which you can see uh, race being a very significant factor in how we understand notions of neutrality. Um, and so I'm doing an analysis uh, with a student, you know, critiquing this event and talking about how to really understand the racial dynamics of the event, you need to situate those dynamics in the context of anti-Palestinian racism. You, you know, you have to understand the very profound anti-Palestinian bias within the academy, which is its own thing that we could talk about. Um, but that profound bias, you have to understand that and set that as the background to understanding why this wasn't an isolated event. This was rather a well-entrenched pattern of bias against particular scholars who write about specific things. And in the absence of that context, you actually, you don't just somewhat misunderstand it. You can completely invert your analysis of what's going on. Um, and race is all about kind of patterns of subordination. So if you if you analyze something in isolation when it is rather part of an entrenched pattern, um, then you can really misunderstand uh, the kind of power dynamics within that setting. Okay, so that's the academic. Uh, in terms of the practical, so I'm counsel at Power Law, uh, which is a law firm based in Ottawa. And a lot of the advocacy that I do can be seen as the practical counterpart to the scholarship that I produce. So I do principally pro and low bono work on behalf of not-for-profit organizations who are making arguments that advance race and gender justice within our courts. And so in that sense, the critique of neutrality we talked about earlier, this is related to that idea that actually, you know, when you're interpreting child support provisions in family law, that there are feminist and anti-feminist ways that those provisions can be interpreted uh, and that there is not an inevitable interpretation that follows from words that there are stronger and weaker interpretations, but also an individual's feminist or anti-feminist politics may push them in certain directions in terms of how they read that legislation. And so whether or not it's for gender justice or racial justice, or I've, I've worked on some international justice issues as well in the context of Canadian mining practices in the global South, all of these are settings in which interveners can come share perspectives with the court to make sure they're aware of the social context and also make them aware, crucially, of the ways in which the interpretation of language can shift in different directions depending on your sensitivity to the relationship between these legal institutions and the reinforcement of various forms of inequality in society. And so in my scholarship, I will write about it. In my practice, I will represent clients who are advocating about it in order to make Canada uh, a slightly less oppressive society. <laughs> and so uh, that, is the, that, is, that is often the type of work that I'm doing. That's really cool. I'm wondering if you can give us an example. I know lawyers aren't always able to talk about their cases, but um, a case that maybe you can talk about uh, that you're really proud of. 
So, I mean, I can talk about, I mean, I'm speaking in my own capacity, but uh, the jury case that I talked about before is, 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 is a good example of this. So there was, like I said before, this, the, the Supreme Court case was called R.V. Chohan, and it was about the government's abolition of peremptory challenges. So these were, I'll, I'll kind of, um, I'll give the briefest background in procedure around selecting jurors. It used to be the case that the Crown and defense could strike a number of jurors without justification. And some defense counsel talked about how they would do this uh, in part to diversify juries. So if they had an all-white jury, they would strike the 12th white juror in the hope that there would be at least one non-white juror on the panel to give some diversity of experience and perspective onto the jury that would ultimately hear their client's case. This was, you know, These were removed uh, from jury selection procedures. And so an individual who was South Asian had his trial, his murder trial, heard without the benefit of being able to strike jurors. Uh, And then when he was convicted, he ultimately appealed. And part of his appeal was on the basis that um, his access to an impartial jury was compromised by not being able to strike jurors in this way. There is a constitutional defect in removing the ability for defense counsel to strike jurors. This case is actually a perfect example of how, you know, there was different racial groups with different perspectives on whether or not this was a good or bad legislative change. Uh, in fact, lots of indigenous groups were very justifiably supportive of uh, removing peremptory challenges because they were often used in an anti-indigenous way. So when there was, most notably in uh, Gerald Stanley's trial, Stanley killed Colton Bushy, who was a young Cree man. And in that case, Uh, Stanley's defense counsel struck all of the visibly indigenous jurors so that the jury was all white, even though the district in which uh, the trial was being held had a very significant proportion of indigenous people. And so you could see how peremptory challenges were used to be racist. But then also some defense counsel uh, in argument talked about how it was often used in an anti-racist way in order to diversify juries as opposed to undiversify them. Both of those sides are giving attention to race and their interpretation of relatively uh, open-ended language, right? In the Constitution, it says you have the right to an impartial tribunal. A jury is a type of tribunal. And so what does impartiality mean, right? This is where indeterminacy comes into the conversation. People can have very different perspectives on what it means for a jury to be impartial. And actually both sides, whether or not it's different Indigenous groups that intervened, uh, or I represented the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, both sides were giving attention to race, right? Both of them were thinking about how this language, impartial, related to notions of race within Canadian society. And so that's an example where inattention to race, I think, misanalyzes. Like, I don't think you can understand notions of impartiality without any attention to social hierarchy. And this isn't just a kind of thing, an argument that critical race theory scholars make up. This is supported by tons of empirical scholarship, right? Like if you read scholarship on men and women looking at the an identical scenario of a male and female coworker talking to each other, and then you have the group of men asked, was he sexually harassing her? And the group of women asked, was he sexually harassing her? They actually give different responses. Not every single man and every single woman, but patterns of interpretation are inflected through social hierarchy. And so you can see quite evidently why in the context of a jury trial, the composition of the jury is not something where critical race theory scholars are just making something about race when it has nothing to do with it. 
they're introducing race to the analysis because it is extremely important to the function of juries, actually. And so that's an example of a case that I worked on where I'd say critical race perspectives can lend a, a fair amount of insight to how the court reasons through things. Yeah, I think that's a great example, and it gives a really good sense of sort of how that type of analysis can be helpful. Um, I'm wondering, I didn't want to make this episode too much about the anti-CRT pushback, because I think people have heard enough about that. Uh, but for a listener that's been listening to this episode, uh, next time they sort of confront a, an acquaintance or a relative that is espousing an anti-CRT position, what would you advise them to say? <laughs> so... There's two things I want to say, right? So anti-CRT is a large category, right? So depending on what the person's saying, there are criticisms of CRT scholarship or patterns in CRT scholarship that I'm actually quite sensitive to and that I think makes sense, right? Like if someone talks about some critical race theory scholarship giving inadequate attention to capitalism, inadequate attention to settler colonialism, I don't think that's true of all critical race theory scholarship, but I think uh, indigenous critiques of CRT not talking enough about those patterns of subordination or Marxist critiques saying that CRT or that some CRT scholarship can give too much attention to notions of racial identity in isolation without adequate reference to the relationship between racial identity and capital markets. Those are actually criticisms that I'd be sympathetic to and that I think should be folded into a more rigorous critical race analysis. So I wouldn't say that we need to rebuff all criticisms of critical race theory, but there's a specific brand of critical race theory criticism which is, I would say, not in good faith, and so then ought to be responded to differently. And so this is the kind of uh, like National Post characterization of critical race theory, which is, uh, you know, it comes in various flavors. And those flavors, I'd say, then dictate how you respond. So uh, if someone says, isn't critical race theory itself racist, which is a common argument, I would say no. And that talking about race or acknowledging the salience of race in understanding society uh, is the opposite of racism, right? It's actually an integral uh, component of understanding our society and challenging racism and promoting racial justice. If someone says, you know, doesn't critical race theory make everything about race? I would say no. Actually, one of the most uh, significant or, or often cited interventions in critical race theory is intersectionality which is specifically about how everything isn't about race, uh, that actually there are related hierarchies that we need to think about in terms of understanding inequality in society and the relationship between that inequality and legal institutions. And so a lot of these types of kind of superficial criticisms elide to the fact that much more of what animates critical race theory is race mattering, right? Like ultimately these types of criticisms are usually coming from a space not of talking about race differently, which is where the first criticisms I talked about, right, the fair criticisms that we should engage with, they're kind of about not talking about race. Like, it's really about we shouldn't be engaging with this whatsoever. And I think that's just an unserious position, right? Like, ultimately, if you look at Indigenous mass incarceration, anti-Black police violence, and various forms of racial subordination in Canada, if someone's position is that we should not talk about race at all, or that some scholars are giving you know, too much attention to race in a country that rarely, if ever, gives meaningful attention to substantive racial equality, then I'd say that's someone who's not seriously engaged in the project of racial justice. And so they're just not, they're not terribly relevant to the types of conversations that are going to make for a more sophisticated engagement with these issues. 
And then the final thing I would say to someone is if they are kind of gesturing at various strands of kind of anti-CRT propaganda, I would also just say, I would tell them that that uh, propaganda exists and is something to look at critically, right? So whether or not it's uh, Christopher Rufo and the Manhattan Institute or Donald Trump's executive order banning critical race theory, if you actually look closely at um, the arguments that are being advanced, in relatively short order, you will see that these are not arguments for racial justice, but rather for erasing racial inequality in society, right? If you closely read Trump's executive order, he says at first that we are against, you know, race and gender stereotyping. That sounds fine. And then if you look at the definition, which lawyers are prone to do, uh, the definition of stereotyping includes essentially acknowledgement of race and gender hierarchy in society. And so to say that you cannot instruct on race and gender hierarchy is obviously to ensure that those hierarchies continue to exist. And so that's just not a serious position really to, uh, to respond to. And I do actually think it's important not to be flippant about everything, but to give arguments their due credit. Uh, you know, I'm not going to write a really long peer-reviewed journal article about extremely superficial arguments or criticisms of critical race theory. I will engage with serious criticisms. Those criticisms will actually cite critical race scholarship and will attempt to move the conversation forward. But those are very different criticisms from uh, the kind of right-wing media campaign that's being advanced against CRT today. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so thank you. I think you've given people ammunition to deal with serious and unserious critiques. <laughs> I'm wondering, in terms of racial justice more broadly, do you have a view on maybe one of the most important things that Canadian government, Canadian society could do to advance race, racial justice? What would be so your like top one to three things? <laughs> I think a lot of, you know, we talked earlier about the entanglement of race and class. And I do think that the budgetary priorities uh, in Canadian society entrench racial inequality in catastrophic and totally indefensible ways, right? Uh, you know, I, I am an abolitionist. I support the defund the police movement. Um, and it can make people uncomfortable at times. But specific examples that illustrate where our budgetary priorities currently are in terms of Canadian society, to me, are one of the most significantly animating things that tell you why, for example, defunding police is a good idea, right? So there was a proposal, I believe at Toronto City Council, I think it was to divert, it was in the middle of winter, it was to divert like 0.007% or something of the police budget to open warming centers in the middle of winter. It was like, it was like, can we divert this tiny fraction of money to our catastrophically bloated police budget to ensure that not three homeless people a week die in Toronto from the elements. Uh, and city council voted against that proposal. And so when people are like, oh, defund the police is this like wild radical position. It's like, actually, no, what's radical is people freezing to death in Canada in winter. That's just a preposterous thing to be happening in 2023. It's preposterous at any time. But if a nation as wealthy as Canada cannot provide basic necessities like housing in Toronto, of all places, that's a catastrophic misalignment of priorities. And that's where things like police abolition come from. The most significant line item on municipal budgets across Canada is routinely policing. And there's a well-established mythology around what police actually do in society that's meant to justify 
these grotesquely large budgets, right? Police are seen as like constantly responding to violent crime in a kind of law and order uh, way. In actuality, if you read scholarship on policing, a tiny minority of what they're doing is that. A lot of what they're doing is harassing minorities in low-income neighborhoods. And so the question is not a kind of retreat that just leaves society to anarchy, but rather a proactive as opposed to reactive understanding of how public safety is constructed, right? Economic precarity is something that promotes lack of safety in society, uh, both in terms of interpersonal violence, but also unsafety like freezing to death outside. And so if you look at cities like New York, which has uh, one of the largest police budgets in the world, the NYPD is larger than many countries' standing armies. And there is a lot of violence in New York. I and other CRT scholars would connect those things, right? Actually, the unbelievable amount of money that's invested in policing every year in New York is not being invested in social assistance, in social housing, in schools, in health, and all of the things that if people had those uh, resources, they could independently flourish in ways that would actually create a safer society. And so, you know, if I could give a kind of, you know, attempt at a global response, I just do think that we could buy, you know, far fewer ridiculously expensive fighter jets and spend a lot more money on like making people live meaningful and safe lives. And those those kind of budgetary decisions are uh, are a far ranging political conundrum, right? Even the amount of money that it takes to pay a bunch of police officers over time to go evict a homeless encampment is like a preposterous policy decision, right? Like it's actually totally preposterous that rather than give people housing, you will evict them from their temporary housing to like, to do what, right? Like to go, to go where in the recent Waterloo decision against the city's ability to enforce that bylaw, part of what the judgment was saying was they can't, there aren't even shelter beds available and shelter beds are their own issue, which many people who experience homelessness will be the first to tell you are actually not a sustainable form of housing. But cities are literally evicting people from homeless encampments when there isn't even shelter beds available, right? It's essentially just condemning people to die in winter. And so when people talk about Canada as this paradise of racial justice, while it is simultaneously evicting homeless people in the middle of winter in Toronto, as if that is a meaningful policy decision or in any way defensible within a liberal democracy, those are the types of examples where I'm like, no, we actually have a lot of work to do in Canadian society in terms of advancing even an iota of justice meaningfully for those who are most marginalized. Yeah, absolutely. When I was doing a field research, part of my dissertation was on homelessness and I was doing field research in the UK. And one of the most common questions I got asked when I was just like talking about my dissertation with random people was like, there's homelessness in Canada? And I was like, yes, <laughs> it kills so many people. Uh, but I think Canada's very good at defending its like sort of good reputation abroad. So multiculturalism. <laughs> all right. So those I'm through all the questions I wanted to ask. Kyla, do you have any that you haven't asked yet? No, that was extremely thorough. My only last question is like, what's going to happen to Florida? <laughs> yeah, you mean like DeSantis and the Stop Woke Act? It's no, it's really interesting. And and this is you know this is another. This is another theme that comes up in critical race theory a lot. The, I, you know, I, I referred to indeterminacy before, but another uh, or like a, a, a corollary of indeterminacy is how people can strategically invoke certain ideas without any actual commitment to those ideas, right? So in Ontario, as an example, there's a recent initiative in the Law Society to have lawyers annually do a journal entry 
about the relationship between their practice and racial inequality. This was met with extremely strong opposition uh, uh, from, I'd say, a minority of members of the legal profession, but who viewed this as a like catastrophic violation of free speech in a democratic society. The slate of people who are ultimately opposed to this journal entry requirement uh, are now campaigning to remove critical race theory from the legal profession. And so they were like, you know, they branded themselves as free speech advocates uh, and are now avowedly anti-speech because free speech is not necessarily a commitment someone will stand by. It can be something that's strategically invoked to galvanize political support for you. And you can see the same thing, uh, say the same thing about the Republican Party in the United States, right? A party that brands itself in relation to liberty, but is like a distinctly illiberal organization, right? So not wanting like drag story time with children uh, is like not liberal, right? Like you're like, that's a restriction on free speech. You have multiple states in the United States that are going to, uh, you know, like kidnap trans youth and who are characterizing gender affirming care as child abuse, who are banning cross-dressing in public and essentially just like being trans in society. These are like liberty protectors with some of the most illiberal laws that they're passing. DeSantis can brand himself as someone who's all about freedom and then like cleanse the curriculum of any reference to race or gender, uh, eliminate tenure at universities, right? These are all non-liberty things, but which are packaged as related to liberty. Um, and that's a common argument in critical legal theory as well, that like you can't actually hold on to a principle and know that the principle has meaning in the absence of its operation. Uh, and so if someone says they support free speech, I'm going to ask, you know, what do you mean by that? Or, you know, if someone says we really need to bring in more voices to the academy, uh, my first question is going to be, do you mean like Palestinian voices <laughs> or do you mean more conservative voices in what I call an already pretty conservative academy? So all these principles are things which you can invoke, which you can use, which you can, which can have meaning, but which also can be profoundly deceptive. And that's also a critical legal studies thing, a kind of need to always look deeper in terms of your political scrutiny to know what people are really talking about. Yeah, it's kind of hard for people who are like, they're the pillars of the institution and the idea of bringing someone in who doesn't necessarily agree with the thing, the ideas that they've been espousing for 40 years is maybe a little bit difficult. Like, oh, I have to look at my entire life and admit that I was wrong, you know? So, <laughs> but yeah, you actually do. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your perspectives and expertise with us. No, no, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, thanks for being part of the uh, attempt at a response to the right-wing anti-CRT propaganda machine. I think these conversations are, are valuable, and I think it's good for people not to, like, you know, accept everything in critical race theory in terms of their own analysis, but to actually understand what it is and then to develop their kind of perspective on whether it's useful or how it might be useful. That's fantastic. And thank you so much for the work that you do just on a daily basis in your regular life like the work you're doing is so valuable and we really appreciate that you take you took like two hours of your presumably very busy precious time to sit down with us thank you very much no no it's my pleasure uh, I, I i know Kristen well from our former days in debate its own deeply liberal space uh <laughs> and uh no and I, I enjoy these conversations a lot i think they matter Th thanks to the two of you for thinking about um you know, platforming these types of conversations more. I think that's also very, very important.
And thank you to our listeners for sitting with us this whole time and broadening your understanding of this highly contentious, weirdly issue. <laughs> yeah, talking about race at all. Yeah. <laughs> Very controversial. <laughs> we'll catch everyone on the next episode.